Thanks for tuning into my new show, Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm Steve Ray, author of the book, How to Get U.S. Market Ready. And in my previous podcast, I shared some of the lessons I've learned from 30 years in the wine and spirits business, helping brands enter and grow in the U.S. market. This series will be dedicated to the personalities who have been working in the Italian wine sector in the U.S., their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. I'll uncover the roads that they walked, shedding light on current trends, business strategies, and their unique brands. So, thanks for listening in, and let's get to the interview. Hi, this is Steve Ray, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. This week, I'm pleased to have as a guest Irene Graziato. She is uh, International Press office manager for a PR company called Studio Crew in Vicenza, town in the Veneto, just east of Verona. And we had met on a uh, journalist trip uh, a couple of years ago, sponsored by, that they ran for the Chiaretto Group, which is uh, a rosé from the Valpolicella area or Bartolino area. And I was very impressed with the way Irene had organized the trip. It seemed effortless. And I do know from lots of experience in the industry how much effort it takes to make something seem effortless. And uh, I've been a fan of hers since. So an uh, introduction and uh, thank you, Irina, for uh, joining us. Um, and tell us a little bit about yourself and your history in the wine industry and how you got here. Ciao, Steve. Thank you for having me around today. And nice to see you again. Well, I, I started working in the wine business over a decade ago. First as a wine sommelier, then I moved to wine writing. I've been a contributor to several Italian foreign magazines for uh Quite, quite a long time. And then uh, I moved to wine PR, which is now my core business along with wine education. So yes, let's talk about it. Okay. So start off with a little bit of a brief intro on Studio Crew and the type of clients you guys handle. I joined Studio Crew, which is a uh, wine and food PR agency based in Vicenza and established over 14 years ago in 2007 by Michele Bertuzzo and Davide Cocco. And I joined them in 2016 in order to improve the foreign activities they have already started back then. We now work with a plethora of clients from Gravner to Cantina Tramin to big consortia such as Chiaretto, which you mentioned, you know, the rosé produced on Lake Garda and uh, Asolo Prosecco, which is the other DOCG appellation. And along with these, we have, you know, family businesses like Tenuta Settecelli in Bulgari and, you know, many others. So we are in charge of consulting and promotion. So everything that goes from wine events to traditional PR to digital marketing and, you know, well, radio interviews, I guess. <laughs> okay. So talk a little bit about the difference in, in uh, doing PR in Italy versus your focus and responsibility is promoting things in the U.S. Obviously, we do things a little differently here. We pronounce words differently. You guys, <laughs> let me try that one again. Obviously, we do things differently here in the United States, and there is a, uh, a trade ecosystem, if you will. And while it obviously encompasses a lot of international people, there is this kind of homegrown sort of network on this. How, how did you get into and find who the right people are and understand how the trade side of PR works in the United States? 
from a base in Italy. I guess that what makes Studio Crew different from other uh, peer agencies is having somebody who is totally devoted to foreign markets and the United States as well, which allows for a huge amount of time to focus on that market, on the trends that are going on in that market and, you know, and traveling to that market as well. So I've been uh, traveling to United States for the last decade, really meeting key players, shaking hands when we still could do that and uh, judging wine also in the United States so you, I got to know, you know, local master wine, local master sommelier, you know, people who were in the retailers, in the trade. And that allowed me actually to have quite an overview on, you know, trends being, you know, I read a lot, a lot of foreign publications, especially the US based one. And, you know, that's fundamental if you want to get into the mentality and also into uh, the what mar- the market is, uh, is, is requesting, you know. Okay. Hard question here. I imagine you've traveled a lot in the United States. How many states have you traveled in and what are your favorite cities? Well, I travel to, I would say, half of the United States. So yeah, quite a few. And, you know, needless to say, you know, if you want to talk wine, you have to be in New York. So I would say New York is the place where everything started, you know, big trends are set. Major critics are based in New York. I know in Napa as well, in California. But uh, I think, you know, uh, New York has a vibrancy that other cities, even, you know, California doesn't have. Fair enough. Okay, so let's uh, deal with the elephant in the room, which is COVID has had a dramatic impact on the way uh, everything is happening, certainly commerce uh, and in the wine industry. But we're taking a closer look at PR here. And how has COVID impacted the way you're doing PR relative to the U.S. market? I remember being in New York City doing an event on February uh, 29th last year um, when I got a notice that Provine would have been canceled. So I immediately thought uh, to, to a way to keep doing the activities we have already scheduled for what is one of the uh, biggest European wine fairs. So we decided on March 5th, I started writing email saying, you know, that the title was Provine Goes Virtual. And we decided we would have still do the Provine with the clients and the meetings that were scheduled. We just moved them from real to virtual. So sending out the bottles and, you know, and meeting the same journalists you would have done in, uh, in Dusseldorf. So definitely this talks about the first important change change uh, that COVID brought around that whereas prior to COVID event was the core business of the wine promotion after COVID we have learned that the meeting is the core business so is it be it virtual or be it in real the important thing is to have a connection with the other person so tasting became the central core of the event and uh, I believe that also what changed is the perspective of how you will be able to schedule a meeting with your importer. So is our wine fairs fundamental? This is one of the questions that I am asking myself and also people in the trade. So that raises a practical question from my perspective is how do you get samples to people? I mean, I, I deal with that all the time, getting samples in of products that are not currently registered in the US. There's a whole process, COLA waiver and all that kind of stuff. If you guys are sending samples to people in the US, presumably some, if not most, of that is coming from Italy. How have you managed that? Well, we worked strictly with many couriers that have helped us, you know, solving the you know, practical problems. Of course, there are a few issues that they have to face. The fact that, for example, if you're doing a preview on Anteprima, well, usually you have 50, 60 samples. So you had to find out a solution to have still allow the journalists to have a preview. But at the same time, you know, not everybody has a sort of magazine where to keep all the samples. So we reduced the, we did like small samples, you know, five centiliters samples 
calls to send over. So we had to figure out how to be able to get, you know, the, the experience as, uh, as similar as possible to the one we had in Rio. But at the same time, I guess online tasting have provided quite a few silver linings. Like, for example, you can do a lot of interactive stuff, you know, showing virtual maps that brings journalists around, even though we are in the U- Italy and, you know, journalists are stuck in the U.S. And I remember, you know, we sort of reschedule our press tour in this way, you know, sending our, along uh, samples and at the same time providing an interactive experience uh, that would allow journalists to have a feeling at least of, of Italy. Parallel to the idea of how you handle fam trips, as we call them, something a similar problem is having uh, is occurring with sommeliers. The role of the sommelier is uh, call it under stress in the U.S. A lot of people got laid off. A lot of people left. Restaurants are closed. What do you see happening and where do you think the role of the sommelier in uh, the United States is going? I think that sommelier will move from a role of stars where they decide uh, which appellation is uh, the, you know, the biggest one or, you know, which one deserves attention or and which wines are really important and which not. They will become more uh, bookkeepers. So they will have to handle Excel uh, forms instead of uh, books describing wine. So I would say their role will, will differing change and they will need more economical background than just you know, wine background. That's definitely something that's going to change their, uh, you know, what they will be asked by restaurant owners. I believe that until COVID has gone, you know, restaurants will save also on sommeliers. So probably the lower end restaurants will take on some people that are not even educated in wine, but have some, you know, financial background and know how to handle, you know, wines in order to have higher margins. We have to think that so far, you know, cities like New York City has lived uh, on very tiny margins when it came to especially uh, big restaurants. And I guess this thing is no more possible. I mean, they have to do the highest margin as, as possible. Well, this will definitely change the wine list. So when I think about Psalms, I've read an article uh, recently, which I thought was interesting, that they also represent an opportunity as a uh, uh, revenue and margin generator for an account. And I think what I'm seeing is the, the transition maybe or the shift from purely an LEA to a food and beverage manager, which has a lot more of the responsibility of managing the profitability of the wine and spirits program, as opposed to just access to. Clearly, we're seeing a lot of restaurants that are going to reduce the number of wines that, that they have on offer. And that makes a huge challenge for the individual wineries. And, and I would think beyond the, the larger brands that are sold in the U.S. like Cabot and Stella Rosa, I think there's something like 45,000 Italian <laughs> wine growers out there all trying to uh, enter and grow in the U.S. market. How can they adapt to meet this changing environment? I believe uh, the communication will need uh, to be reshaped uh, somehow. You can, yeah, of course, the first thing probably that will be talked about is price. So I guess that appellations that are able to offer high quality at a lower price with respect to competitors to other states will definitely uh, have some space, at least right now. And I believe it's also a matter of conveying other values that simple, the wine, you know, uh, being able to offer the chance to have an experience. So wine is a way to have an experience, you know, to open up memories of good time, honeymoon in Italy or something like that. And uh, I guess also sustainability. People during COVID has 
paid more attention to what they are drinking and eating and, you know, the safety of what the food and the wine they are drinking. So I guess also this aspect will become fundamental uh, in uh, promoting uh, wineries. Speaking about sustainability, I saw some research from Wine Intelligence that I thought was very interesting, at least as it uh, applied to the United States, that the word sustainable is more powerful than the word organic. Organic speaks to a much smaller, more demanding audience, whereas sustainable is a little bit broader. And we're seeing some changes in the way wine is being described in the U.S. Uh, certainly in the trades, I'm sure you've seen it as well as I have. Cameron Diaz came out with a new wine and it was called, she called it a clean wine. And everybody in the industry went crazy talking about that's good or bad. What's your thought on that and, and the, the words that are used to describe wine? I guess clean wine is is a tricky question indeed. Uh, it's a t- tricky topic indeed because you know, like uh, wine for sure contain alcohol, and we all know that in uh, you know it can be dangerous uh, if taken in high quantities. But uh, wine is also uh, something which brings up sociality, staying together, uh, partying with friends. So it brings a lot around a lot of uh, good sensation, good feelings. If we had a, a look at numbers right now, we have seen that last year the consumption, wine consumption decreased by 7%. And I guess this is due to the fact that wine is something social. Lacking as a, like social revenues, uh, we cut down on the you know, uh, consumption, even though you know, we're, we're still drinking wine at home. So I guess this is something relevant. Going back to what sustainability uh, can means, I guess it's more powerful as a word than organic because it appeals to something which is wider than a simple uh, farm practices. You know, it talks about being uh, socially sustainable, you know, environmental sustainable. You know, we all know that uh, copper and sulfur are used in organic viticulture, but still, you know, copper is is a metal that stays in the land uh, for a while. And so we have to look beyond those uh, solutions, which I would say they're temporary. So that's why I guess people are more, uh, you know, in tune with sustainable word, uh, the word sustainable than simply organic. The other thing that I say is that sustainable is, you know, is a word that can be used for anything. So we have to make sure that the con- consumer really gets to understand that we are really doing sustainable approach then not just about, uh, you know, talking uh, something which is wide and doesn't have any practical meaning in the end. Yeah, the good news and the bad news is organic has a very definitive it has as a definition in the U.S. and it's regulated by the USDA. So beyond just the uh, TTB, Tax and Trade Bureau, which is the primary federal regulator, when you use the word organic, um, you have to bring in another um, federal entity, which is going to be a challenge for producers. I think sustainably produced also speaks to beyond how it's produced, but the mindset. And we, and we, we see that in basically more holistic view of the wine industry and culture. Related to that, you were talking about communications and reading newsletters and all that kind of stuff. We've seen a dramatic decline in number of magazines that are published or the number of columnists that write about wine for newspapers, which are kind of threatened as well. So as this audience of arbiters, if you will, uh, the people who write and critique wine and wineries and all kinds of things. How are you guys adapting to that when there's fewer people for you to reach out to and more fragmentation in their reach and, dare I use the word, influence? 
Yes, that's a, one of the biggest challenges, I guess, we are facing the fact that, you know, we're still doing wine communication, but the actors and the players have changed or in some way they have transformed. We have the influencers, which is a big like hype right now. Probably it's already decreasing a little bit with respect to a few years ago, but I've seen that those ones that are still uh, making trends in, you know, on Instagram are those people who already were in the business. So be them either, uh, you know, critics journalist or sommelier I, I can remember you know Rayat Par which you know he has the role he has on Instagram because of his as wine sommelier he knew a lot about wine and he's still able to, to set trends so I would say that uh, we had to change also our coverage so right now you have to you will present your client both with an article and an, an Instagram post because they have the same value and sometimes you know the Instagram post being immediate uh, taking less time than writing an article article is even more effective if you have to be on the um, on the topic right now immediately so if something happens you know like the instagram is definitely a different rhythm with the art okay so the challenge is you know clients want publicity uh, one of the things i find is as the newsletters have evolved and increased dramatically the length of stories or the the amount of coverage that a brand may get is smaller okay so Frequency of mention in a lot of places is taking the place of a deeper, in-depth, two-page printed story in a magazine. Wonderful. But you still have to tell the story. I mean, uh, drinking wine and pretty much selling any product is all about telling stories, even more so today, both in terms of uh, new new generation of people, the way communications is evolving, uh, and then, of course, uh, the addition of COVID. So how do you tell the story when the outlets in which to tell the story are disappearing? I guess the story is still there. It's just the fruition is different. Once we're used to read uh, newspapers and get the stories from there, right now you you open Instagram and you get the story, the visual story. So we have like a written story versus a visual story. And I think an important switch that's becoming more and more popular is, you know, the fact that the more and more stories are orals. So you get a lot of podcasts that are becoming extremely popular because, you know, people still love to listen to stories. And when they get fed up with visuals, you know, um, Instagrams, you know, seeing one photos after the other, they are moving to podcasts because they really have, uh, you know, they can really enjoy the rhythm of something started and how wine developed uh, over the years. So I guess that we are really going back to the first, the first area of literature, you know, like when the Odyssey was written, it was not actually written, it was heard over the years and then it was shaped. So I, I like the fact that our communication is really changing, not only in the channels, but also in the way we enjoyed it. You had mentioned you you do some teaching and I do as well. And one of the points I, I make to my clients or to the students is your job has changed to, to get people to tell your the producer story in their words and share it with their friends. It's very different than when you did a magazine article and you reached a whole lot of people. And so that changes the dynamics of a, of a whole lot of things because you're giving up control to some degree, but you are also taking control by managing the conversation. Can you comment on that? 
Wow, that's a great question. It's, I guess, always a matter of how you shape your um, your, your story and you make it, um, you know, enjoyable for a different uh, interlocutor. So uh, be them the one that will be able to retaliate or be the one that, you know, will be able to enjoy it. I guess that what's, what you need to make, to do, to make it successfully is to really pass on the passion that you have, okay, for it, the fact that um, you know, words of mouth is probably uh, still the, the best you know uh, promotional strategy uh, because it's a trust. Uh, it's an action of trusting you know the people that's telling you this. So I guess you know uh, getting those people, your interlocutors, inside your story, okay, will make them uh, effective as, communic- as communicators themselves. So you have to appeal to what they find uh, you know empathical. Now, well, the issue I, I see from a PR point of view is the metrics we use is a problem too. We've always used the term impressions and measuring media, and now we're in millions, and there's all kinds of ways of manipulating the reports to show that you've been generating results. But I don't think impressions are really of any significant value. Um, it's word of mouth, friend to friend advertising or communications. I think that carries a, a, a lot of. Uh, impact. So the tools are different now. Used to be you would uh, write up an interesting pitch letter, send it out to editors, and hopefully somebody would read that and say, yeah, I'd be interested in that story. I'll follow up on that. That's not the way you would necessarily work with newsletters because they're not going to do features. So how does the way you pitch, how has that changed? Not just who you pitch to, that's what we talked about, but how you pitch. Well, high pitch through different channels. Okay. For example, I've seen that, uh, to talk with sommelier, I need to pitch through Instagram. For example, they will really, well, they will answer to emails at a later pace with Instagram. Okay. And then I pitch depending on what the journalists are up to in that moment. I keep reading them and reading what they're, you know, what they're writing. And then when I see something that they're working on, I will pitch them with that. So it's a lot of, you know, reading and answering back and being able to get in while they are, you know, interested in that. Of course, you have also the classical pitch letters. So you're starting working with a new client and you knock on their doors and say, hi, and we have started working with them and, you know, they do this, this and this. And another thing that I've seen is that actually right now, you know, I've got journalists reaching out to me, you know, asking, you know, I'm working on this, you know, what have you that I can use that goes with that. So I guess it's also a matter of building a relation in which they understand that, you know, I'm providing food for their stories. So I will reach out to them and they will reach out to me when they want. Well, it's really hard to understand what the needs and interests of that person versus somebody else might be. And the best way to do that is exactly what you said. Get to know them, understand what they're doing. And when you understand their bias and then can come and give them a pitch that ties on to a theory or a thought that they're already working on, maybe the clean wine issue and the use of the words or the jargon that we use in the industry. Uh, could be. But, and at the end of the day, was personalized. Okay. You don't send out mass pitch. No, no. Nowadays, it's got to be right one on one. Yes, definitely. Uh, it takes more time for sure. There is a huge amount of time investing on that. But I mean, uh, you get personal with people, you know, uh, be able to spell their names, uh, be able to remember what their interests That's really important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Knowing their name correctly. Yes. 
How about that? I always make a, you know, an effort to try to, well, not only learn how, what's their, how's the spelling of their names, but also, you know, what's the pronunciation of their names. You know, it means putting your interlocutor at the center of the conversation. That's what they are looking for, you know, being considered not just because they write for a publication, but because they are people, they might like something. So make sure you get the right name uh, on it. And secondly, you know, start getting personal, you know, sharing, you know, something that I lo- love to do is, you know, share pics of things that I'm doing. I've got like people asking, you know, recipes and, you know, even sharing, you know, recently I shared the recipes of the grappa, the basil grappa that my mom does with one of the journalists. She was so, so happy about that. And, you know, it, me- it means, you know, making their time relevant to their life as well. They're not only, you know, being uh, pitched by somebody, but they are getting some knowledge, you know. Um, so, you know, make the time they spent on your email enjoyable for them. It's very easy in the end. Simple, but not easy. Mm-hmm. How yes. about that? Just, I'm sorry. I gave it to sorry to you. correct yeah. your English, but I think people mistake the two and they're two very different things. Uh, simple is not the same thing as easy. You guys work for companies that have PR budgets. Um, they seek out, seek you out for, you know, for presentations to say, you know, uh, pitch my business. How can small independent wineries get the benefit of some of the things that you guys do as an agency on behalf of uh, larger clients, can they participate in this? Is this a tool, and I'm talking about PR in the the largest sense, that they can use, recognizing that they're farmers, you know, we're talking about small estate producers that may be only making 50 or 100,000 bottles. Um, Can they participate in this? And, And if so, can you offer any tips on how they can? Uh, well, gathering is the first uh, suggestion that I will give them, you know, like uh, um, finding, you know, grouping together, working with consortia, so small agencies, small wineries that actually decided to give their communication to the big consortia is a way, you know, to have to be able to speak uh, on behalf of. So, for example, another association that we work with is uh, the FIVI, so VI, uh, which is the Italian Pennant Association of uh, Wine Growers. And, you know, they're all small uh, producers that decided that, you know, communicate together was the best option. So they gather together, they abide by certain rules, okay? um, which means that, you know, they're in charge of the whole production from the vineyards to the marketing of the wine. And, you know, moving with this strategy makes it so much more effective. So there is a way out of it, which is, you know, getting united and be able to communicate as a united uh, entity and not as a small one. One of the cultural things that's been happening in the U.S. is we haven't been able to travel, but there's been this one travel series, Stanley Tucci in Search of Italy. I don't know if you've heard about it or seen about it, CNN production. I was watching it. I thought it was fabulous. You know, he was going to some restaurants that I know and have have been at. It's exciting to, oh, I've eaten there. But the one thing that amazed me when I think about Italian wine is Italian wine goes with Italian food and Italian food goes with Italian wine and the two are kind of sort of inseparable. He did six episodes of a show, including one in Bologna without mentioning or referencing wine. I have a comment on that, but I want to hear if you have a comment on it. Well, the problem with Emilia-Romagna is that I guess the food is so outstanding that people forget about wine. <laughs> and this is the only reason why I would say, you know, like... That's a great answer! I like that! 
No, actually, you know, uh, it, it's 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 almost uh, impossible to understand why once people get lens to you know Emilia Romagna, they completely forget that the wine is so you know cheerful. And I guess they remain fascinated by you know the smile of people. The local people are simply so much welcoming, and you know they just drink the wine because it's you know they're thirsty and they enjoy it and they enjoy the Lambrusco, the bubbles, and that this does not mean that actually is not a great wine. There are some producers which are you know uh, wonderful and uh, which you know provide such an enjoyable um wine to be to, to cheer up your experience and so yes the motorland and the foodland is actually also a great wine land we I, i've seen that people are people are more and more interested in great quality lambrusco so i believe it's only a matter of time you know to really sort of figure out that wine is enjoyable as well yeah so maybe they'll uh, and i don't know i'm speculating it, it, it got a lot of viewership it was a significant thing the stanley tucci thing and maybe they're going to have another one where they'll, they'll focus on wine a little bit more because they certainly showed them drinking wine a lot but they didn't talk about it but you know like there was a recent article by uh sarah heller the master of wine who was saying that i think wine italian wine probably uh differs from french wine for the fact that it's way more acidic sometimes you know and the, the bitterness of italian wine is something that's typical and we always been judged by the french parameter so the article was uh you know is the wine business doing bad on italian wine because taking as a reference point something which is completely different and i guess she pointed pointed out a crucial point, which is the fact that Italian wine is meant to be paired with food. And th this is a great thing. And I guess in, in Stanley Tucci's, um, you know, a series, this, this was just like manifest under the eyes of everybody. Kind of running out of time here. And um, as I had mentioned, we, we like to talk about a big takeaway yeah, at sorry. the end of this. So we, we've talked about PR and we've talked about changes and we've talked about COVID and the, the dynamics of journalism changing. What's a big takeaway? What can someone listening to this podcast walk away from this thing and put to use immediately? Can you give us your thoughts? Well, be personal in what you're doing. You know, it's time of your life that you don't want to waste. And uh, another thing that I would say is smile while you're writing emails, while you're answering on the phone, uh, while you're, you know, doing business. People perceive your energy and the fact that you're really enjoying what you're doing. You know, I, I've heard recently, if you if you answer on the phone smiling, people get that on the other side of the, of the line, even though they're not seeing you and this makes things so much easier even when you're handling you know difficult things you know be sure uh be prepared for sure uh you mentioned the fact that uh, everything seemed uh, like you know simple uh when i was handling the press tour this is not at all i mean this means a lot of preparation before and being able to you know get great allies so from the travel agency to the courier to the importer so make sure to build up a great team and get personal read your interlocutor's article uh put your interlocutor at the center so from starting from their name, you know, getting how to spell it, ask them what's the pronunciation of their names, try to reproduce it correctly. You know, this will make feel them so much, you know, uh, part of what you're telling them and the center of the conversation. And another thing that I love doing is, you know, learn to say thank you in the language of my interlocutors, you know, from Skvala, which is Slovenian, Faleminderit, which is in Albanian, uh, Spasiba, um, 
what else? Arigato, for example, in Japanese, uh, this opens up doors. So I would say, yes, this is a great way to, you know, have uh, somebody smiling back at you. Well, that's great. I think what you're really hitting on here is pay attention to what the other person is thinking and how they're reacting. I know how I react when somebody spells my name wrong which happens a lot, they leave off the E. It tells me they're a little sloppy, that they haven't necessarily done their homework. Little things like that can carry a lot of weight. I don't have a comparison. Well, Irene, we're running out of time. I wanted to uh, thank you for being a guest on Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People, and you're an Italian wine person. <laughs> so we hope to greet you in the U.S. on your next thing. And by the way, next time in you, in, you're in New York, you're in town, give me a call. <laughs> This is Steve Ray saying thanks again for listening on behalf of the Italian Wine Podcast.